0: Our scripture reading tonight comes from Romans chapter 1, verses 18, all the way through the end of the chapter. Let's give our attention tonight to the reading of God's Word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is forever blessed. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God— heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's word for us. You know, I wonder if you can remember the last time, if ever, you found out that somebody was mad at you. Um, I want you to imagine that you're sitting in your dorm or your apartment and suddenly your roommate comes in and says, man, what did you do to so-and-so? I mean, they are ticked at you. Now, I may realize that there's probably as many different answers to that question as there are people in this room. Uh, you know, for some of you, you're going to look and by a comment like that, be thrown into this very deep, restless panic um, Others of you seem to kind of thrive on that sort of drama. Uh, you just sort of swim in it very well for one reason or the other. But I'll say this, no matter how you react to that, my guess is that almost everyone in this room is going to have an almost irresistible urge to look into the, next, into the situation. And your very next question is going to be something along the lines of, why are they mad? What did you hear? Right? Right? Look, y'all, we're looking this entire semester at how we can shake up our boredom with Christianity by trying to return to its most fundamental points of doctrine. You know, I tried to suggest to you a couple of weeks ago that, you know, in the South, people are not so much offended by Christianity as we are over it. It's almost as if Christianity is the kind of thing that we've, we've been there. We did that. It just fails to move us in any significant way like the other stuff in my life does. But our semester's consideration is simply this. Is that the most basic assertions of Christian truth, when you see them in the Bible and you see other people react to them in the Bible, call out all kinds of reactions. People get terrified. Some people are appalled. Uh, Some people are humbled. Some people are changed by it. But out of all the list of reactions that people have to the fundamental points of Christian doctrine, boredom is not on that list. I hope my hand doesn't bleed from that. That's what you get for swinging your hands. I'm out of practice, okay? Bear with me. Boredom is not one of them. It's not one of the reactions that people typically get when they interact with this particular truth. Look, Paul has just said in verses 16 and 17 like we talked about 2 weeks that he is about to bust at the seams to talk about this good news. And almost in the exact same breath in verse 18 the first thing he says is for the anger of God is being shown. I don't get it. How can this be good news and suddenly starts to talk about God being angry? I mean, what if your what if your roommate came in and said And what did you do to God? And he has ticked at you. How would you react to that? Look, in order to unpack this, and I realize that just mentioning the wrath of God freaks a lot of you out. And so we have to look into this topic and understand exactly what's being told. And so therefore, I want to look at three things. First of all, we have to understand that God is angry. Second of all, we have to look into why he's angry. And then thirdly and finally, we need to look at, how he is angry and hopefully that'll make more sense as we sort of dive into this. Okay. Point number one, we have to establish that God is angry. You know, I've I've really tried to imagine, you know, the reactions of, of most of you in the audience. When you hear this idea of the wrath of God, Uh, this is what I've come up with. There's probably, (laughs) there's probably a group of you that are thinking to yourself, Oh, good. So it looks like I am remaining in therapy this semester. Um, You know, for many of you, this idea of God being angry at you, you've maybe even uh, properly identified as the source of all the dysfunction in your life, psychological, emotional, and otherwise. Okay? That's one possibility. Uh, The second possibility for some of you is there's a wash of like um, a a vaguely familiar guilt that comes over you when you hear about God's uh, wrath. In other words, you feel a little bit like you're back in that sort of redneck church you grew up in, you know, where the wrath of God and God's anger was sort of held over you as a way to kind of get you to start acting right. You know, God's going to be angry, that kind of thing. But the third kind I think of you are those who are looking and saying, okay. So that's what this, is, this group is really about. You're one of those people <laughs> who believe in an angry God. You know, for, for you, at best, that's kind of a primitive notion to talk about. Uh, at worst, you would look at it and say, this is what's wrong with these fundamentalistic churches. Look, all I simply want to establish for you is, is that our generation has no idea what to do with passages like the one that we just read. It's completely foreign to us because typically I would submit to you that the reason for that is because we tend to project onto God. Follow me here. We project onto God our very human ideas about our own struggles with wrath and anger. Does that make sense? And we cast God's anger into the form that it is, that it feels like for us. In other words, God typically gets polarized into one of two extremes. Either on the one hand, he's just like us in that he flies off at the handle, right? He's malicious and and vindictive, like we're terrified God might be. Or on the other hand, he's just like us in that he is, you know, he's above getting angry, And he represses all negative emotion, right? In other words, we think God's anger sort of goes into one of those two categories. But look, y'all, it is worth the expenditure of your time to visit the idea of the pure, settled, controlled, holy, perfect antagonism to all evil. It's worth you spending time here for reasons I'm going to elucidate in just a minute. But there's a quote that I stumbled across by a great theologian that you need to be aware of by the name of John R. W. Stott, S-T-O-T-T. Read whatever this guy does, right? Listen to this quote. It's a little long, but I think as it washes over you, it'll give you a beautiful picture here. He says, you know, the kind of God that appeals to most people today would be easygoing in his tolerance of our offenses. He would be gentle gentle kind, accommodating. He wouldn't have any kind of violent reactions. And unhappily, even in the church, we seem in our day to have lost a vision of the majesty of God. There is much shallowness and much levity among us. Prophets and psalmists would probably look at us and say, there is no fear of God before their eyes. In public worship, our habit is to slouch. We don't kneel nowadays, let alone prostrate, in other words, lay lay face down ourselves in humility before God. Rather, it's more characteristic for us to clap our hands in joy rather than to blush with shame or tears. We saunter up to God and claim his patronage and his friendship, and it never once occurs to us, listen, that he actually might send us away. We need again to hear the Apostle Peter's very sobering words in 1 Peter 1, 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives in reverent fear. In other words, if we dare to call our judge our father, we must be equally careful of presuming upon him. It must even be said that our evangelical emphasis even on the atonement And on the cross and Jesus dying for our sins and that kind of stuff is dangerous if we come to it too quickly. Hmm. We learn to appreciate access to God, which Christ has won only after we have first cried, Woe is me, I am lost. Look, y'all, we have to be careful not to shy away from a truth that we only typically misconstrue. Because the truth in itself is is a doctrine that when it sits and stews in us, it begins to purge our imaginations of all of the visions of anger that we were taught by our parents or by our peers. And we begin to realize that what we have is a God, contrary to those false visions, whose anger is clean, clear-headed, unyielding, and inevitably opposed to anything that is contrary to his own character. Look, my advice before we move on to the second point is don't run away from this, y'all. As much as your heart wants to kind of shy away or perhaps even race to sort of like, okay, yeah, 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 wrath, wrath, wrath. Get to the whole Jesus thing, less. Uh-uh. Park on this for a second. Think through what this might mean if there really is a God in heaven who doesn't tolerate sin. That God is angry. Number two. So it's natural to ask the question, why? Why is God angry? Why would he have this sort of what we consider to be very human emotion as a part of himself? Well, I can give you the rest of Romans 1 18 in one sentence. God is angry very simply because of this. One sentence. People who know better worship things instead of him. Catch that. God is angry because people who know better worship things instead of him. Now, there's two parts to that sentence that I want to try to unpack for you in terms of why God is angry. First of all, people who know better. Look, y'all, to be honest with you, verses 19 through 21 are very controversial if you really go back and reread them. Because Paul is basically saying that in the deepest expression of who you are, Everyone knows there's a God. Even the most strident of self-conscious, thoughtful atheists, Paul is saying, know that there's a God and are aware of that God. And they're aware of two things, that he's there and that we are completely dependent on him. You know, a number of years ago when I was the RUF campus minister at the University of Memphis, I had a conversation with a young man that I've never forgotten, and many of you have heard me reference this conversation because I talk about it so much. It made a big imprint on me. But I was talking with a guy who had gotten to, to, to college and really just sort of grown into a lot of skepticism about whether or not he believed the stuff that he felt was jammed down his throat when he was growing up. And he looked across the table at me at one point during our lunch that we were having, and he said, Les, this is what I don't understand. Why is it that God is hiding? You know, if if God wants people to believe in him so badly, why doesn't he make himself more obvious? Why all the cloak and dagger? Why the invisibility? I mean, if you're there, show yourself. <laughs> Let me know that you're really there. Now, I think that's a very interesting apologetic question that we could consider in depth at a later time. But all I want to simply put in front of you tonight is this. There's nothing more evident in the Scripture than the fact that God is not hiding. You know, you look at places like Psalm 19 that talk about the fact that the heavens, you know, display, declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork and that their voice goes out through all the earth. In other words, the Bible says that at this very moment, All creation, whether it's things that man has put together, like this lovely edifice in which we're uh, talking tonight, or whether it's the created order outside, from the grass to the tree to the sky to the clouds to the rain or anything else that God has created, the Bible says every bit of it is shouting to the world that he's there. And actually, according to Paul, it's shouting to the world convincingly. In other words, the shouting is actually getting in and that people know and therefore are without excuse if they deny his existence. (laughs) So you see the friend, the answer to my friend's question, it's not God that's hiding. (laughs) The Bible is claiming that it's us that are hiding. Why? Paul answers that question because we want to be in charge. There's a power struggle going on there 's a power struggle between people who know the inevitability of god 's truth but have taken that truth and in paul 's words are holding it down that there 's a weird psychological self denial that paul 's describing here a self deception even even if where they 're suppressing the truth now look. Let's say tonight, and I'm granting this maybe that's probably the case, that there's a lot of you in this room that are thinking, that's bunk. (laughs) I don't believe a bit of that because I want to see God. I want to see him. He's not showing himself. I would have seen him, wouldn't I have? And I simply want to offer this one thought to you if that's where you are tonight. Would you? Would you honestly? Especially if you knew that that God had absolute claim over every single aspect of your life. And can you not at least agree to the possibility that there's a capacity in your own human heart to say something that I know is true? I desperately don't want to admit that it's true. So much so that I'm actually going to, here we go, convince myself that it's not the case. It's psychologically possible, don't you think? And that's, what, that's exactly what Paul is saying. Look, Paul is suggesting that we are all stuck. This is why I like the movie The Matrix so much. <laughs> The idea of the matrix is very uh, biblical if you believe that human beings are living somewhat in in, in a prison of their own making. A prison of their own mind because they're willing to sit and listen and allow those thoughts to simply brush right past them. Chalk it up to some neuroses that I have. Chalk it up to that stupid fundamentalist background that I grew up with. And never once asked the real questions as to whether that may very well be the voice of God. Paul says God is angry at the fact that there are people out there who know better. Secondly, but they know better, and these same people worship things instead of him. This is the second reason why God is angry, because we worship things instead of him. Look, I have to commend you a wonderful little book by Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods where he deals with this whole topic in length. And he talks about this, and he mentions the fact that in verse 25, it says that these people have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they have worshiped and served created things instead of the creator. Okay? Now, look, I want you to notice about that verse something very interesting, that there are only two options. You either worship the creator Or you worship created things. But you notice that there's no possibility of not worshiping. you catch that? It's either one or the other. The capacity of your heart, the inevitability of your heart, the Bible says, is that you are going to worship something. Human beings, I try to argue with you week in and week out, are inevitably worshiping creatures. And by that, I don't mean like what we're doing here tonight. We're sitting in a pew, and we have songs in front of us, and we sing along. That's worship. my friends. That's an incredibly limited view of what the word worship means. What worship means is to look to something and to grant to that thing our highest allegiance. That this is the thing without which I will not be happy. Right? It's the thing that we look at that has captured our imagination the most vividly that we give the most of our time to. It's the place where we rest our deepest hopes. And when it's threatened, it's the location of our deepest fears as well. Every human being, every human being looks at something and says, as long as I have that, I'm worthwhile and I'm somebody Or, stated negatively, if I ever had this taken away from me, I'm not sure I could go on living. My friends, regardless of the religion that you profess, that is your God. Whatever you put in that blank. Because that's what you're worshiping. That's getting your time. That's getting your money. That's getting your interest. That's getting your imagination. Look, and you realize at that point, if that's the definition, then almost anything can become an idol that we worship. You know, Paul here, you know, makes a link to sexual desires about being sort of full with sexual desires and whatnot, especially homosexual desires. It's an entirely different discussion. You can go back and look at our discussion last semester in Leviticus for more on that. And of course, we might think that Paul just kind of has sex on the brain when he mentions this whole thing. But what we find in other places in the New Testament, Paul actually links the issue of idolatry to all kinds of things. You know, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul calls covetousness idolatry. In other words, where we look and say materialism, the love of money, he says that is idolatry at its heart. In other words, there's going to be something that you're looking to for value and safety more than God. In other words, God is saying, I am the one that you were built to enjoy ultimately. And I'm actually the only thing that you were built. And so what this means is for some of us, even our religion can be an idol. You ever thought about this? Look, y'all, if you're trusting in your willpower, if you're trusting in your sincerity, if you're trusting in your sort of generalized goodwill towards people, you know, I don't hate anybody. If those things are being trusted in as the ultimate reason why I am who I am, then your very faith can become idolatry. Even all kinds of religious activity like coming to RUF and Bible studies and everything else can itself be an expression of looking at God and saying, I've got it. I got this under control. My life is still mine. Look, y'all, I'm telling you, until you begin to start to use the framework of the language of idolatry, I'm convinced you're never going to understand yourselves. This goes so deep and will so help you explain your life. Look, take an example. Consider two Ole Miss students, okay? The first is the picture of Ole Miss success, okay? Uh, They have lots of friends. It's the kind of person that's always seen in the right places. Uh, They have all of the right plans for the future. But you know what? Underneath, they've become miserable. You want to know why? Because they've become only what their friends wanted them to be. Their lives, when they really stop and think about it, are nothing more than very sophisticated public relations machines. They are constantly managing other people's perception of them. It motivates everything they do. But they're the picture of all this success. The second student, though, is the picture of Ole Miss failure. They don't go out on weekends. Uh, They isolate themselves behind anything from video games to, to their studies, perhaps. What friends they do have, they end up verbally sort of cutting to ribbons because of the deep cynicism inside of them that comes simply because they don't fit into that dumb Ole Miss mold, right? But deep inside, they're miserable, They're miserable because they have no idea how to connect with people and how to experience the joy of mutual fellowship that they know they were built to experience. Now think about this. Two people with entirely different lives, but yet they both are living for the exact same idol, namely acceptance from friends. Two entirely different lives that are brought together by the exact same idolatry between the two of them. Look, y'all, this is your challenge that I want you to think about this week. How can you explain your life using the language of idolatry? Fill in those blanks. What are the non-negotiables of your life? To what do you, what do you daydream about? Uh, but w- what do you get nightmares about? That's another interesting question. What is it that causes your biggest emotional mood swings? Hmm. Look, God's anger is what it is because people have set something in their hearts that was never intended or never designed to be in that place. And because that's happened, the effects are disastrous, and that's why he's angry. Because we're destroying the very thing that he created to be beautiful and lovely and enjoyed by his people, and that's why he's angry. Which leads me to my third and final point. And that is how God is angry. Look, y'all, in verse 24 and 26 and 28, all right, there's a phrase that keeps getting used over and over again to understand the manner of God's wrath and therefore the way in which we can recognize it. How do I know if I'm seeing God's wrath? Well, because God's anger is manifest in this little phrase. You ready? Giving them over. God continues to say that he gave them over, Right? In verse 24, it starts to describe what we're given over to. And, of course, the word there, he says, is lust. And once again, we tend to think that this is like sex. But the Greek word actually means more than just sexuality. The Greek means not just a desire that we have, but an over-desire, a super-desire, an inordinate desire. You know what God is talking about or what Paul is talking about in this chapter? He's talking about addiction, y'all. Paul is saying that the peculiar nature of idolatry is that it leads you to do the very thing that you didn't want in the thing. Follow me here on this, y'all. This is huge. In other words, we go after our idols so that we can control our lives. But in the end, it's our idols that are controlling us. In other words, we never actually get the very thing that we're after. God's saying that what happens to you in idolatry is that you become a robot. You become a slave. You don't just experience disappointments in life. You are so consumed by them that you've even toyed before with taking your own life. That, my friends, is what we call addiction. It's the word translated lust there. And what Paul's trying to say is, is that being controlled by your idols, therefore, leads to the, to the disintegration of your personhood. It's to your dehumanization. You become like animals. We become like people that consume each other. Look, that list in verses 39 through, um, uh, 31 through 39 that I read for you, shows us what it's like to be relational consumers, to be societal consumers. In other words, it's people that feed off of each other rather than being committed to meaningfully giving to one another. Look, let's take another illustration. Here's two old Miss students again, all right? The first we have is a young man who has just been broken up with by his girlfriend of many months, okay? Um, you know, he's deeply disappointed. He honestly sheds tears over what he thought might have been and what could have been. It's not easy, but as the days begin to pass into weeks and the weeks into months, he finds himself moving on. He's never going to forget her, but he's not as haunted as he used to be by her anymore. That's the first one. The second person, though, has also found himself broken up with by the girlfriend of many months. Uh, He's not just disappointed, though. This young man is devastated. He cries himself to sleep tonight. uh, At night, in utter despair, he pushes himself to do wildly irrational things with a drinking or stalking or whatever he does. It's impossible, he says, for him to move on. Why are you laughing at the stalking? Why is that funny? He doesn't know how to move on. You want to know why? Because all that marks his life is more and more anger. He's angry about his life. Look, I, you know, I was reminded of, of one of my favorite songs. It's, it's by a sort of a singer-songwriter named Carla Bonoff, and she's got something called a. Um, is anybody familiar with the with the with the word torch songs? Do you know what a torch song is? A torch song is one that you write and sing when everything is when everything is hanging out. You are so heartbroken and so crazy in your head over what's just happened, it all comes out in the most shameless of ways. My favorite song of hers is a song called um, Lose Again. Listen to the lyrics of this song. It opens up and she says, Save me. Free me from my heart because the train's gone down the track and I have stayed behind. She says, But nothing can free me from this ball and chain. I made up my mind that I would leave today, but you're keeping me going. I know it's insane because I love you and lose again. When the heart calls, the mind obeys. Wow. Oh, it knows better than me. If I hold on for one more day, oh, maybe, maybe he'll be true. But nothing can free me from this ball and chain. I made up my mind that I would leave today, but you're keeping me going. I know it's insane because I love you and lose again. Look, what is that? That's addiction. Look, y'all, the first guy that I just described is honestly somebody that, the first guy that we described is, is someone that no one in this room is naturally. And the second guy that I described, I bet every single person in this room can relate to in some sense. Look, y'all, I simply want you to to, to stop and think about something. What if that drivenness, that inability just to let it go, is itself the wrath of God being manifest in your life? And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, and that helps me how? You're going to now load God's wrath on top of me? Ah, just a minute. What if the reason why, listen, listen, listen. What if the reason why it's been so hard to get over that person is because the remedies that you've been applying to your own heart have been so superficial? In other words, you've not looked. You've been taking aspirin because of your headache, and you don't understand that you have an inoperable brain tumor. That's, that's a, that, that, that solution is not going to help because your problem's too big. And is it possible that looking into the depth of the wrath of God actually has the power to make you seek solutions in more powerful places than in your willpower or in your quiet times or in your attendance at RUF or in your promise that you'll do better next time? Look, y'all, the hint at how God is going to heal you is already here. Did you notice this? It's not here explicit, and I understand that. I don't like to leave you without like at least a ray of the good news that's coming in a couple weeks. Stick with me, please. But can you see how God's going to deal with this? Look, if our number one problem is that we find our delight in the wrong kinds of things, does it not then suggest that the way God is going to reverse that trend is by showing us himself to be all that much more attractive than the things that we've locked our hearts on? For some of you, this is not obvious. Look, y'all, God is going to have to show himself to be better than your idols. It's not enough to walk out and think that feeling guilty and feeling bad about the wrath of God is going to make me walk out the door of Parrish Chapel and change. It won't. Only good news can change you. And what that means is, is suddenly this thing that I've become so addicted to that I can't just let go has suddenly got to become ugly. And Jesus has got to become lovely to me. Now, I hope you're asking yourself, how could that ever happen? Stick with me. Stick with me. And you can consider that an invitation. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you do us the great grace of perhaps allowing us to live in the discomfort of the possibility of your wrath. To be honest with you, for many of us, the the, the word wrath doesn't belong with you. But you used it in your word, and so we feel like we got to take it seriously. Lord Jesus, would you help us to see, to identify, to understand what it is that has bothered you the way in which it has. That your creation is constantly marred because we are taking things and worshiping them as if they were you. We've worshipped girlfriends and boyfriends. We've worshipped careers. We've worshipped families. We've worshipped people. And laid behind us is the dehumanization of our own lives. For many of us, Lord, our arms drop down to our sides, ready to say we are, we are addicted. We are idolatrous people. Lord Jesus, maybe in that moment for that soul who might go there tonight, would you show yourself to be more lovely than that idol somehow, some way by your spirit? If you would do that, we would be most grateful. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Save I uh-huh.